Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. So uh, today, welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I've got one of my mentors, uh, you know, through books and through technology. And actually, I met him in person uh, twice, three times now, because I met you at Beloved, too. I don't know if you remember that. Always back, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we've got Michael Mead. And uh, Michael Mead's a mythologist. And, a, and you can see by the books behind him, he's an author and has worked a lot with the men's movement and works in healing culture uh, and healing ecology through telling stories, drumming, and bringing people together to gather in ceremony and ritual. And uh, this comes from his Irish background and growing up in New York. And uh, I'll let him take it from there. Michael, who are you? Who am I? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in Irish terms, I guess you would say Shanaki. That's the Irish for someone who um, is involved with stories and receives messages from the unseen world. Um, so I guess I would resonate with that title. Uh, in Africa, it's called Griot. And um, there's lots of names for it. And I stumbled into the idea of telling stories while playing hand drums. Uh, like on my own, not even knowing that it was a tradition in many parts of the world. And so I've been following that for oh, decades and decades. And so that coincides with uh, learning about myth when I was 13 and, and realizing there was another world that maybe in many ways was wiser than this world and stories and dance and music are um, ways of connecting to this unseen world, which the Irish called the other world, which sometimes you could call it the inner other underworld because it's in us and it's all around us, unless we have been trained to only see the obvious. And so I guess throughout my life, I've been moving more and more into that connection with the unseen. Hmm. Yeah, I, you said that something really powerful happened to you at 13 and you discovered myth. What was it that brought myth or that other world into your existence at 13? So the kind of thing people call a coincidence that wasn't a coincidence. Uh, I was, my 13th birthday was coming and I grew up in a relatively poor family and I had already learned don't ask for what you want because you won't get it because no one can afford to give it to you and if you do ask for what you want you just make everybody depressed for two weeks and so when my mother said what do you want for your birthday I said oh it doesn't matter you know nothing be fine mm -hmm. but my aunt asked me what are you interested in and I said history because at the time I was intrigued with history I was trying to figure out what the hell happened here why is this whole neighborhood so so kind of in pain and confused? And um, so my aunt went to the bookstore. She was a notoriously short person, went in and asked where 
a history book might be, and they pointed like to an upper shelf. She reached up and could barely reach it, got a book, they wrapped it, she brought it back, gave it to me. I tore the paper off and she said, oh no, it's the wrong book, I grabbed the wrong book. And what I'm looking at is a flying horse with a guy sitting on a horse shooting an arrow into the air. And I said, no, I want this book. And she said, it's the wrong book. And I said, no, I won't. And then I tore the rest of the paper off and it said mythology, mythology by Edith Hamilton. So it was the right, wrong book. It was a gift by mistake. And it was exactly what my soul needed. That night I read almost the entire book and I found the language of my own soul. I was 13. Um, a little, you know, skinny guy, didn't fit in anywhere, you know, troubled family kind of thing, all of that. And yet I fit into this book and I fit into that mythology. I didn't have to get older. I didn't have to get bigger. I, was, I just needed to hear and read that language. And I found a world into which my psyche not only could fit, but really woke up. And so ever since 13, I've been following myth one way or another. I had a moment like this myself at 13 and uh, it wasn't a book. It wasn't something from the, like, it wasn't so comfortable, I guess I should say. I also lived, I grew up in the hood uh, outside of Oakland, uh, surrounded by projects. And uh, my house was the one that was bordering all of the projects where there was, we had a cement wall with a razor wire. We ended up putting an electric fence up. Uh, and, uh, it was one Saturday when I was 13. I never made this connection before. And I was listening to prepare for this podcast. I was listening to Iron John by Robert Bly. Uh, he mentions you in there and um, a couple of times because I know you guys did work together. And he talked about that there's a time in someone's life, usually around 13, where they're supposed to essentially separate from their mother and their father, which happened pretty early for me, but not fully. And they're supposed to be a male mother is supposed to come into their life and that male mother is the mentor. And I never made this connection until that, till I think it was yesterday that this came to me while I was listening to this book. And I realized that I, I didn't eat a lot as a kid and I would, you know, get dizzy and stuff. And I was watching, I'd, I had fallen. I'd remember this part of the story. I had blacked out and I had hit the ground and I had woken up and I had said, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And there's blood everywhere. And my cat's licking up the blood and my teeth are through my lip and my jaw's broken. And I'm really skinny and small. And, you know, and I, and, and I remember being terrified. And prior to that, everything got really weird. Like I was in another dimension, but what I never, rem what I did, and I ended up going to a group home after this and my whole life changed and it was hard, but I, I went through a new definitely new portion of my life at this time. Uh, there was a huge break in my family. The, the whole family went into shambles. Went in. Yeah. And uh, what I never made the connection of is that the movie I was watching had a deep importance. Again, a coincidence. The name, I've never seen it since. I'd never seen it before. It was a movie called Mr. Mom that was playing when I stood up and this happened, which is the, the, the male mother <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was almost like it was designed so that later I would know that there was some meaning there, that there was an initiation that was supposed to happen right there. And of course, I had to wait however many years. My math's like, I'm not in that part of my brain right now, 39 minus, you know, 13. But uh, there was a deep intelligence and a spirit and a being at work there that would have it turn to that channel. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it is traditional in most parts of the world until modern time 
for girls and boys to go through some kind of rite of passage that was intended at least partly to be an awakening to who we already are inside ourselves. So one, one description of that kind of thing is um, kind of uh, revealing oneself to oneself. And some kind of drama is needed in the sense that uh, the person has to be pulled out of the daily world and it has to be something extraordinary. My sense of it is it's automatically connected to something that's already present inside the soul, the way I think about it. Um, and that's what's trying to be awakened and become connected to a sense of self arising from inside oneself. So six months, I had the book at uh, 13. And so I have this sense of a, another world. I remember trying to convince my friends that we, we weren't just a gang. Our purpose wasn't just stealing hubcaps. That, that was our, like, our side work. <laughs> you did that too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried to convince everybody that we were Jason and the Argonauts, and we were going for the Golden Fleece. And, of course, they didn't, couldn't understand that. The gold part was interesting. They didn't get the rest of it. But about six months later, uh, I was cornered in the bathroom of a movie theater, um, which we used to go to, and I went up to the bathroom, and there were seven guys from another gang, actually a gang of older guys. They were older than me and bigger, and they had knives, and they threw me in the, in the bathroom on the floor and then told me that they were going to cut me up because my friend had insulted them. And, and so, and they were known to be deadly. And so it wasn't going to end well. And, and I think when I look back, my ego departed at about that point, not going to stick around for this kind of pain. And a surprising thing happened, which, um, without my deciding anything, a voice inside me started to tell them a story mm -hmm. and they got so intrigued with the story. They forgot to hurt me. And then, and at the end, the leader of the gang said, okay, we're going to let you go. Just tell your friend, you know, never do anything like that again. And so I walked out of there. I didn't go back to the theater. I got out of there in case they changed their mind. And now I'm walking through the streets thinking, wow, this idea of story is more powerful than weapons. Literally, I could see the weapons going down and that killing stare going out of their eyes as they listen to a story. And so at 13 and a half, I had this, connection to myth. I had this ex life-saving experience about story. And, and really, that's the time where some kind of mentor should have showed up and said, okay, this is what your life is about. But the fact is, there was no one in my life that understood what I was going through. And so it took a long time to actually inhabit that fully. And Robert Bly was significant in that. He was a mentor to me. He was 17 or 18 years older than I was. And he saw that, that um, storytelling mythology part of me and kind of blessed it. And so that was, but that took many years before I found a way to actually live with what had awakened in those two experiences. How did you feel while you were living with what had awakened, but yet not had any, you didn't know what to do with it? Because I feel like some people, at least a lot of people that I meet and a lot of people I know growing up, if they're still alive and I'm in contact with them, they've had very profound, deeply troubling experiences that a lot of them have lived with and live still live with. 
and they haven't been blessed yet or haven't ha- found a mentor and are still struggling in the economic system and in broken families and PTSD and dr- you know most of them are free of drug addictions the ones that didn't free themselves are no longer with us uh you know and the ones that were really violent go to prison and or are dead so uh what uh what did you do between the time you discovered that part of your soul and then found the blessing and were I, I guess I don't know if this is the right word were initiated into this next part of your life when I started working with uh, gangs and gang kids and homeless kids I had to figure that out because I realized I could not mentor them had I not been mentored in some way and I couldn't try to confirm or bless them if I didn't have blessings in my own life. And the story I was telling myself uh, most of my life was that I had never been supported or blessed or confirmed, that I was just on my own the way I felt that day when I was 13 and a half. But that wasn't true. I had to dig in and find little moments, not big things, but small moments where someone had pulled me aside and, and given me some advice or someone had protected me or confirmed something in me that made sense to me. But what really happened was after I got drafted to go to Vietnam and I sent them a letter saying, you know, I appreciate the invitation, but it's not a declared war. Near as I can tell, it's not a legal war and it sure isn't a smart war. So I'm not going to come, but if you have another war, let me know. You know, I thought I was being very courteous. (laughs) And then so pretty soon people are knocking on the door saying, You either go into the army or you go to jail. Anyway, it's a long, complicated story, but I wound up going into the army, partly because uh, my parents and all my relatives have been involved in World War II, and they were all saying I had to go. And I didn't have the psychic strength to just say no, even though I thought it was wrong. Once in the army, it didn't go well at all. No one told me. They give you orders all the time. I'm not good at orders. You know, so I would just refuse to do orders. And when they, the day where we were given a presentation about how when we were told to go up a hill and after the enemy, even if people are all around us were dying as we were going up the hill, we would go anyway. And I just stood up and said, you know, I don't think I'll do that. I don't think so. I said, you know, this is starting not to feel right to me. I think I made a mistake. So I think I'll go home. Well, that didn't work out. Military court sentenced to the stockade inside the stockade it turned out they give you orders you know try to say didn't you get the memo i don't do the order thing Mm -hmm. uh next thing i was put in solitary confinement i was in there for several months uh and while i was in there i decided to stop eating so i was didn't eat for almost two months inside that cell and that's when i got a blessing was literally by myself in a solitary cell, wasting away. And I was alone almost all the time. And yet I wasn't because figures started to show up in the cell and I had to figure out, am I losing my mind or am I in fact finding my mind? Because they were figures from the stories that I had started reading when I was 13. The characters from the myths came and hung out with me in my solitary cell. And I had to begin to understand that this was my psyche. This was really who I am at a real, really deep place when everything else was gone. And so it was a very strange kind of confirmation to get 
from stories, from characters and stories. And that really changed my life in the sense that I almost died a couple of times in there. But I, when I came out, I was a different person. I was now quite sure or certain that part of my life was to be connected to myth and story and deep imagination. But I had the same problem when I came out. No one around me understood it. And so it took another almost nine years before I found anyone that would confirm in a way that was believable to me that this is what my life was about. Yeah, I could relate with your solitary confinement story. Um, I ended up getting put in solitary confinement at 21 years old for being named in a crime from when I was 14 or 15 years old. And it was a glitch in their computer system, essentially, that it should have been tossed out or there should have been notes there. And they put me in juvenile hall but couldn't keep me with the general public and uh, just left me in solitary confinement for a month. And they didn't tell me how long I was going to be there. And I didn't have any figures come to me or anything. I was pacing around there like a freaked out cage lion imagining. I, I guess the thing that I did was kind of think back at everything I had possibly ever done that would be negative or have deserved this or like, you know, did I somehow kill somebody growing up? Like, I mean, my mind was telling me that, you know, maybe somebody died in something that I didn't know about. And I, I mean, it was a terrifying experience because for the first, I don't know, week or two, I can't remember how long they wouldn't tell me why I was there. I don't think they knew. And uh, I was just sitting there and there's no books and there's no nothing. I didn't think to not eat. I, I don't know what I was doing. I mean, I was playing with my food, talking to myself, pacing around. I mean, truth be told, I would sleep as long as I could uh, to try to pass the time. And then I would masturbate as many times as I possibly could in order to like feel some type of sensation that was different than the terror that I felt that I thought I'd never get out of there. And there were people screaming down the hallways because it was suicide watch for the rest. That's what the cells are there for in juvenile hall. And there were all these, you know, uh, there was, I remember there was a black kid across the hallway from me, maybe, I don't know, 15 or 16. And he just like was screaming and banging on the thing. And, you know, I would kind of just stand there and stare at him and I could see him kind of, and that was basically my only contact that I had. Then I get two showers a week, but it was a miserable experience. And I see that this is happening to a lot of our youth the people that need the most amount of mentorship and the most, and that have gone through so much suffering really need to hear these stories, really need to understand these myths so that they're not alone in their cell, feel like suffering from a monotheistic myth that somehow they're part of the devil or part of the antichrist or, you know, that they're innately evil. It's remarkably parallel. I was 21 when I was in that cell. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and so one difference was that I did know that something in me was meaningful, uh, was probably unique, a unique sense of self. I already had that. And, and, and I'd have to think about how that, that got confirmed. But even though, well, you know, you go through that many days and nights with no one else and you really get pared down. I quickly developed exercises. I did physical exercises as long as I could. Eventually I couldn't. Mm -hmm. um, but I also did self-calming things. When I look back, I figured out these self-calming things. But really, I went back to stories. And for me, you know, because the stories are all about how someone or everyone gets in trouble and then they find a way out. And my psyche just kept going back to stories. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, I was saved by stories. And the, the, go, the going without food was interesting. It just occurred to me one day 
mm. that I was going to stop eating. I also threw out all the clothing and all the bedding because I was just saying, look, I might as well not be here because I'm never going to be part of what's going on here. And I was trying to get them to understand um, the nature of my attitude, which they kept thinking was I was tricking or trying to trick them. They just didn't understand uh, that a person could be have their mind set on a certain way. When I got out, one of the things that helped me is I saw a report in the newspaper in New York about the uh, Irish the IRA Irish members who had been locked in a British prison and started fasting against the government because they thought it was unjust. And then they started dying. And, and I realized it was like an ancestral thing in me that had awakened. It was an Irish thing in a funny way. And then I researched that and, and they have a thing called Truscott, Truscott, which means when someone feels authority is being misused, they go on the steps of the building and they fast against the misuse of authority. And that's what had awakened in me. I mean, it was an ancestral kind of energy. And so, so I got, I came out of there actually knowing a lot in a sense about myself, but not fitting into culture. I was very much PTSD, of course. Yeah. But I also didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And, um, so that is when I began to study initiation and rites of passage because I knew from some story or something that in a rite of passage, you kind of get stripped down to the essence of self. And so I thought maybe I could learn from studying that. So I began a you know, decades long study of rites of passage in different cultures. Yeah, it's bringing me back to whatever I was missing in that same space is that I, I think I was on a different path. I had got involved in network marketing or something and it was trying to like make a make wealth and get out of quote unquote the rat race so I could have some freedom. Like, I mean, I was always running and I felt like my whole life I've been running in a hamster wheel to try to get out of the hood, you know? Um, and, uh, and I did, even though I got out, you know, relatively young, I moved away as soon as I could. And uh, I never really felt out enough and I think that maybe I have a lot of roots in that or something. And at the time I was trying to like build business and, you know, I, I remember I was even dating a woman who was studying to become a sheriff, which is like totally against everything. I was basically living a lie and I knew it and I felt it, but I felt like I had to do it because I was good at it. I was good at public speaking and I, it was in the thing called Amway where you, you know, yeah. And I, I was becoming really successful. I was actually supposed to go speak in front of thousands of people uh, I don't, a, day, a day or two from then, and I ended up getting pulled over. My friend was driving, and he had a warrant out for his arrest for selling alcohol to a minor when he worked at a gas station. And they said, well, can you, can you drive? And I said, yeah, sure. They're like, give me your license. And I'd been pulled over before, and nothing ever happened. They're like, put your hands behind your back. I'm like, what the hell for? You have a warrant out for your arrest. And, and I think maybe for me, this was like, a, look, man, you're like, you got to go this other direction and until you do that like here you go you're going to be sitting in it you're going to be sitting in the sitting in a cell so the the things that i started to study was it turns out that in the mid 60s is when initiation which is an archetypal process rites of passage initiation by then it had disappeared almost everywhere in the world 
I mean, Maasai tribes were still doing a version of it. You had some of it going on amongst Aboriginal people in Australia. But for the most part, it had stopped happening around the world. It used to be all over the world. Um, so then what happens, because it's archetypal, is it can't disappear. It just disappears from sight. Then it exists inside people. And so I started to study the idea that when someone's in life-threatening, life-endangering, or life-changing circumstances, the energy or the process that kicks in is initiation. In other words, the circumstances of life are going to cause us to transform into a different person. That's what initiation is about. Because we start early on adapting to the family, adapting to the neighborhood, adapting to the school, adapting to the culture. Humans are the most adaptive beings on earth, and it's a blessing until it becomes a curse because most people have over-adapted. And so in, in the study of all this stuff, I be, began to realize that um, a person, no matter what their circumstances are, will partially reveal what their inner gifts are. I call it the genius of a person. And so in your story, what I heard there was you're on your way to give a talk to a large audience uh, because you have that kind of capacity. And so that element was already present. It was just misdirected. Mm. Um, and then what happens is when there is no formal rite of passage, which every girl and boy needs, we wind up in what a friend of mine coming out of prison called informal rite of passage. That's how we talked about prison. But in, when you go to jail, like you did, or I wound up in a jail, um, that's an underworld initiation. Like some people go through it because they're on the Olympic team or something, and they're going for the gold, and they have this whole life-changing experience, but it's in the light, so to speak. And other people go into darkness and go into the underworld. I've heard you say that before. I've never understood what you meant. Yeah. Well, when I work in prisons, which I've done for years, you know, going into a prison, I always talk to everybody as straight up as I can. And I only go in because I've been in prison. In other words, I have a minor qualification for being in there. I know what it feels like. And I know it feels like what it feels like to want to be out. And the first thing I say is, well, there's two ways uh, to do this. You can just simply do time, or this can be the time of inner revelation. So you come out of something as negative and troubling as a prison can be, but still you come out of it as a different person, as a genuine version of yourself. And because it can be an underworld initiation, the same way if someone gets sick, they're separated from everybody. They wind up in a hospital, they lose friends, they lose their sense of identity, their sense of who they are. Their body has turned against them, let's say. And, but the soul is still there. And the same thing, sickness or loss of a loved one, those are initiatory experiences that can become the context for a person awakening to who they are. And so, like, you know, Mosaic, which is the organization I have, has been built upon working with homeless kids, gang kids, homeless people, people in prison, battle veterans, all kinds of people that are lost in this unfinished initiation realm where they're partly initiated, but they never got all the way through, and therefore they didn't get the benefit of the initiation. And so, yeah. It almost sounds like the souls that like can't pass over, 
they're, you know, like when people say like they're spirits that can't pass over, you know, and it seems like when you say that, I picture someone that's like partially through initiation. It's like they're, they're half here and half there. You almost see like a part of the spirit coming out of the center of their chest. Or I picture Donnie Darko from the film, like with that vortex coming out of his chest. And I think I feel some sensation like that quite often where there's like a power that's almost there, but not quite. Yeah. Yeah, there's supposed to be a spiritual coming together inside a person. So that, uh, so I found this story that I've told many times about the half boy. He's, he's a boy who's born only as half. And so naturally he comes into the world screaming. He's only half there because he's crying and screaming. Everybody moves away from him. That makes him cry all the louder. Uh, and eventually his family moves away from him and he realizes he's going to live his whole life as a half person with something missing and turbulent things happen. So he drags himself out of the village, winds up on the edge of a river and coming down the riverbank, he sees another half person and he thinks, oh, this is perfect. We'll come together, the two of us. And so they do come together, but they fight and they fall into the river and disappear and the river boils. And after a while, Sure enough, out of that boiling river comes the half-boy turned whole with the two sides brought together. But he's quite disoriented, and he can't find his way back to the village. So there's more to the story. But what I was after there was going to the very bottom of the river, which is like going to the bottom of the psyche or the bottom of the soul where the split parts of a person can come together. And that's what mm, dangerous or, or life-changing experiences are about that we're either going to fall apart more or we're going to come together. And so that's what baptism is about, as it turns out. Baptism wasn't invented by Christians. It's an old African ritual for bringing the spirit together. And they would take someone in the water and hold them down until they come together. And so started, I started to find stories like that, which were teaching me. And then I used them in working with groups of people about how to come together inside. So the baptism was like an initiation of sense, like you get close to death and the other part comes, comes there as well. Not like someone splashing water on your face and saying, now you belong to our, our cult or tribe or church. No, or it was an immersion in water. And the idea was life came out of the water. That's how everybody thinks about it, that life came out of water. So you get put back in the water pushed down to the origin of life. And the way the way it's done in West African tribes, an elder holds you down until they feel something come together in you and then they let you up, let you up. So you know, you hope they don't have an elder moment while they're holding you down and forget mm -hmm. to bring it up. So I got yeah. to do both parts. I got to be held down, then I got to do the role of the elder. And it's you can feel something come together in a person. And so the idea, if you step back from it, is when we go down, when we descend, it's not going into an empty, dark place of nothing, which is what a lot of people are afraid of. Yeah. We're going down right. to the roots of our own life. And that, I call it the soul, because that was the old word for what holds a person together. The soul is going to use every opportunity to try and make something whole out of the parts of us. And in just to finish, in working with youth, the first thing I do is try to tell them, you don't have to make something of yourself, you already are something. 
There's something in you that was born with you that actually knows what your life is about because that's part of the problem. People don't know that there's something inside that's cohering, that's gifted and that's valuable. And therefore that when we go through all the difficult times, they don't make us whole because we don't know that the thing we're looking for is inside. All of these things are lost, Michael, at least for me. And I think for most people, the fact that there is a soul, that that's not just some like cute thing to say about somebody's soul. The fact that people are unique and come into this world with something. The fact that they even come into this world from somewhere, that we're not just some accident, you know, flesh robot existing on a dead rock, floating around, uh, coming out of nothing, going to get blown out and go back into nothing. The idea of elderhood, like what the hell is that? I don't know any elders, you know, like you basically. And maybe there's a couple more that I'm starting to know now. Uh, uh, the idea of elderhood, the initiation, what the hell is that? That just sounds like some weird thing that people that were archaic, that, you know, were primitive, that didn't know any better, didn't know what life was really about, used to do kind of like sick, twisted psychopaths, you know, you know, preying on the youth in some weird, twisted way to get their rocks off. That's what I always thought of it when I even when it was mildly introduced. And there's still a little bit of that alive in me, that cynical nature that goes like, well, maybe there isn't anything, even though I've experienced like incredible synchronicities. And I think I need that shit. Like I've seen so much fucked up shit. Like I need big fucking magic. And like, like I need to see, I'll give you a story if you want to hear it, Michael, right when I left the men's retreat that I spent with you in August. I don't know if this is the right time. Um, it feels like it is, but uh, I went down uh, with dropped Darnell off at home in in, in in San Francisco where he lives now, and I went to a, a acquaintance of mine's house, friend of mine's house in uh, Oakland. We went to an uh, went to, me and Michael went and ordered Ethiopian food, and he and we missed the time. We thought like we we're going to take it to go, and it didn't work out. Madeline was coming in, uh, my fiance, and I was thinking a lot about her at the men's weekend, like you know is this the right relationship? You know, like, like, you know, we're getting married, but like, I haven't bought a ring yet. And like, I should do that now. Like, like I always put this shit off. Cause I'm like waiting for some, the other shoe to drop, you know, I'm like, well, I should get a ring, you know? And so we go and, and I, I drop Michael off at Bart and I, Madeline comes and I pick her up and I'm like, Hey, we ordered all this food. You know, we were supposed to take it and take it to go. And I said, but it wasn't ready yet. They were like five more minutes and the five minutes I thought would, he might miss his flight. So we went back to the restaurant and we decided, hell, we're going to just eat it right here. It was one little table on the sidewalk in, you know, a kind of shady part of town in front of an Ethiopian restaurant. I didn't realize that that's the first place I ever went with Madeline on a date four years ago was an Ethiopian restaurant. Again, one of these weird synchronicities. And then I go inside to go get uh, a, a fork. And even though you're not supposed to eat <laughs> Ethiopian food with a fork, and I come back out and standing out there is a gentleman, a black man about I don't know, in his 60s maybe. And Madeline's standing there holding in her hand a diamond ring in a case. And I'm like, what's going on? And she goes, uh, he just found it here and he just gave it to me. And I'm like, well, you can't just give her a diamond ring. He goes, well, I don't need it. I don't have anyone to give it to. I just thought she's beautiful. Here you go. You guys could have it. You guys look like a beautiful couple. And I'm like, just have it? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, and, and he looked like he didn't have enough like money for food or like, you know, there's people begging everywhere. We'd like, you know, given a couple bucks to some people that were just around, you know, we're the only white people anywhere around there that I saw. And, uh, and I said, well, are you hungry? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm hungry. I go, do you want lunch? And he goes, yeah, sure. He go, and I go, what's your name? And he goes, my name's Tyrone. And I'm like, yeah, thank you, Tyrone. Like, you sure about this? Like, this is an expensive ring. He goes, oh, no, no, you keep it. It was meant to be. 
And uh, I've got a lot of these really powerful stories, and I think I need them, you know? And I think I feel bad for the people that don't get these, you know? Or maybe you get them along the way or something. Can you speak to that, those synchronistic moments and why some people get them and why some people don't and, you know? Well, I think it's a matter of how you hold them, how you hold them, because that sounds to me like the antidote to, to the part that says the world is just all crazy and, and the more cynical parts of the self. And the antidote is like the book that my aunt gave me that was the wrong book that was the right book. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's this a need to accept the world as it is, now, there are times when it can't be acceptable because there's abuse happening or some kind of danger or something. That's a different situation. But in the meantime, there are all kinds of synchronicities that go beyond coincidence. And and so I don't know. I mean, there's a whole way to look at that story that has to do with following love and, and letting, you know, more beautiful things come into a person's life. So... There's a thing called the gradient of the soul. The idea that there's two ways to look at it. One is a gradient line, like a, a, a plot line that the soul is trying to follow. Another image for it is a thread, that there's a thread trying to pull us in the aim and direction of our lives. And when we're in line with that, that's when the synchronicities happen. Beautiful things happen. Chaos turns into beauty. When we're in line with it, we meet the right people. There's times where we can't find a friend anywhere. Yeah. And other time, everybody we meet is given us something. Or we meet people that turn out to be lifelong friends. And I think it has to do with being in that in line with the soul. Um, that's how, you know, that's an old way of thinking about it. That everybody has a soul thread, a plot line, trying to unfold everything but the modern idea that it's all an accident we're just accidents inside an accident that's a very undeveloped idea i mean if if people really believe that it's a it's a miracle to me if people really believe that that there's not even more school shootings and that there's not even more bombs and even more wars like i mean if you really think that if you really sit with that story it's absolutely horrifying and terrifying yeah well, the trouble is more and more people are believing in it. And, and not only that, some of the people that are in charge are believing that. that. That's what you call nihilism, the idea that it all means nothing. And that's what gives people in power, powerful permissions, in a sense, the idea that they can do destruction and not be responsible for it. So that's something that's growing in the world. But one of the biggest problems is that we have lost as a collective group the sense that each person comes in as a unique being. If we don't live our lives, no one will ever live our life. There's something unique about each soul that comes into the world. Another way to, to say it is nature only makes originals. No two trees are the same. No two birds are the same. Each production of creation is a creative production that produces something original, original and unique. And so the trick of one's life, one of the core things is to find the uniqueness of oneself and, and then to trust that. And so if you take, most people have, uh, well, they took a survey of families, right? How many families are dysfunctional? Turned out 104%. 
<laughs> you know, like, because there's a few extras that are, you know, voting twice. But um, so, so all functional, all families are dysfunctional to some degree, which means everybody's traumatized to some degree. And we have experiences that mm, amount inside as a denial of who we are. And we have to break through that. And somehow we have to get through that. Culture used to provide ways to do that. And I'm not saying all ancient cultures took care of everybody perfectly, but the idea was that the older people helped the younger people awaken to who they were. Uh, and now that's all gone. So as a person gets older, it can get to feeling worse. Somehow a person has to get the sense that I'm valuable as who I am in my core. And the other thing I always say to young people is you have gifts to give if, if only you could find them and learn how to give them. Because when a person gives the gifts of their soul, the gift doesn't diminish, it gets bigger. And so those are the things I, I've learned. And now with the world getting more and more disoriented, more and more chaotic, we can't find stability outside ourselves we have to find it inside. What's coming up for me is that I, I meet so many talented young people. Um, I come to mind and Darnell comes to mind and many people that come to ecstatic dance that I know come to mind and Michael Kundick comes to mind. And for many of these people, uh, they all of their life force is drained, working miserable, soul-sucking jobs surrounded by people that they don't get along with. And they're trying to figure out, well, what the, how in the hell do I earn a livelihood and then also share my gifts with the world? There seems to be some form of block there that even me, that's what I do. I work in this field of trying to liberate people from overpaying taxes, student loan debt, other debt, getting screwed because their credit screwed up. Like basically all these, I, I went and kind of just plummeted down a mountain and like hit a whole bunch of these things. I was addicted to opiates. I had terrible credit and couldn't rent a place. I had my teeth rotting out of my head. Like I, you know, lived in group homes and all the shit that went with that. I was, you know, a, a minority in a, a in an area. I was the only white kid pretty much in the whole neighborhood uh, with the exception of maybe one or two others that never went outside, you know? So like I hit a lot of these rocks on the way down and got a lot of these wounds and it's been a real challenge to try to like uncover ways to like simultaneously share my gifts and earn a livelihood like it seems like in the past these tribes or these cultures just naturally shared their gifts and then they were they like they took care of them and like the elders initiated the youth and then when the elders got old the youth took care of the elders and you know there was some type of harmony and i feel like that's not happening or if it is i'm missing the memo of what how exactly to do this no it's not happening much at all and um, but so there's a theory out now that you can uh, kind of rescind your own story and transform yourself into into someone else. And that's not not how I see it. I think owning the story starts to reveal things like it's interesting to me that you would be working, trying to help people solve student debt and other kinds of things, because uh, but what's what, what's interesting to me is how you mentioned how early on you got an Amway. Mm -hmm. you, got yeah. a, you went into Amway. So some part of you was interested in the idea of how you build something and you build it financially. And, and so those things eventually we have to trust. 
I don't think Amway is probably the solution. You probably didn't either. <laughs> the American way is definitely not the solution. <laughs> but it shows a kind of intrigue, you know, because what I did, I, I knew that I had to work with story and poetry and myth. I began to understand that. But, uh, but I, was a, I was a team star. I worked on the docks. I drove trucks. And, and one reason I did it was it was good, honest work. I could get it. It was honest work. And it allowed my imagination to roam freely while I'm loading a truck. I, I can be imagining anything I want. And so I, I kept in touch with my dreams, so to speak, while doing honest labor. You know, that was just the example. Because people had told me when I got interested in stories and, you know, mythology and stuff, well, you can't make a living with that, and therefore you have to let it go. But I actually found there was a way to hold on to both things. And so, um, so I began to use the mythology and all of my interest in, in poetry and imagination. That was my practice that I started every morning. Then I go off to work. And when I had a job like that, I could continue. I could repeat poems to myself while I was loading freight. It worked really well. You know, so, but get, but honestly, in this culture, I was privileged. I was white. You know, I could get a job more readily. I know it's really hard and people really struggle. Especially with criminal backgrounds, which generally just gr growing up in this way, you end up with a criminal background and then your options go down to almost nothing. I was, you know, fortunate to have all of this stuff happen as a juvenile, you know, but that's still, it still haunted me. I didn't know you could get records expunged. So I went around applying for work and, you know, kind of cowering, like, oh gosh, you know, I remember the first job I got was selling cars, you know, on commission only. But I mean, I had tattoos on my hands. I had, a gr my tooth was gray. My other tooth was cracked. You know, I, I went to the thrift store, to the cheapest thrift store I knew to buy suits that were like three sizes too big. I looked like a, a 1970s black preacher. I was wearing, buying like teal suits and maroon suits and showing up to, I mean, I wish I had a picture of it because it's so unbelievable that like somebody wouldn't have said like, what the hell are you wearing? I found out later they kind of like secretly giggled and like, what the hell's wrong with this kid? What the hell's he doing? But I truly didn't know what the hell to do. You know, I'm like, I, I just, I just didn't know. And I, I like this idea that you were able to keep your imagination sovereign and free and you were able to nurture that. And I think that maybe that's some of that, the bridge is you might've spent a bunch of time going to school for something and feel like you're obligated to like do whatever the hell that is because you've got the student debt and you've spent all this time doing it. But instead, is there something you could do that could bring the, your soul calling alive or that could at least keep your imagination going to where you're, you, you're, you have the container, the sacred space, so to speak, to where that vision can come to you, where the muses could come dance, where you, know, you, you even have the chance to meet people and have some time off. You know? And a lot of people instead are you know, working full time and then doing, you know, some other business at night to try to make up enough. That was my plan. Like, how do I make enough money so I could at least have some time? And initially it was, I'm going to be a firefighter so I could work, you know, one day on and two days off. So I could like write and figure out what the hell it is. You know, I, I had to dream of being a writer, but I'm like, you can't make money writing. So like, I just really wanted to have time to write. And then I found out, you know, if you're white in the Bay Area, you're not going to be, you know, affirmative action. You're, you're going to have a hard time, especially the background. I had a criminal juvenile criminal background. You have to say, what did you do? Have you ever smoked weed? Have you ever done? I, I had done all of the damn things, you know? Uh, so I'm like, shit, that's just out of the question for me. And, uh, and so I thought, you know, maybe it's like this Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad thing. Like I'm going to invest in real estate and have, 
you know, properties and then make money from that. And I bought properties and I did door to door sales to make enough money to buy properties. And then, and then I see poor people living in the properties and they can't pay rent. So I'm like, Hey, don't worry about this month. Just make sure you pay next month. And they all of a sudden go, Oh shit. Well, this guy's cool. I'm going to pay all my other bills instead. And then like, now I can't pay the mortgage. And then that doesn't work either. So, I mean, I've tried to get the hell out of this. And ultimately it seems like maybe, uh, you'd said something about running towards the roar, maybe running, maybe I should have tried to figure out, well, maybe I try this damn writing thing or, or try reading some stuff. I don't know quite what to do. I, I, I did the best I knew. Uh, and I found those were the mentors that I'd found. So. Yeah. I mean, so it's like a maze. So the old idea of the labyrinth that we're in a maze, it's a big puzzle. It's become a big puzzle for everybody. Now the politics it doesn't work. The institutions are collapsing. More, more and more people are seeing the labyrinth. How do you make your way? How do you get through this? I go back to that thread and the idea of the gradient. So that, in other words, there's something that allows me to be centered or closer to the center of myself. And if I can manage that often enough, then I start to meet the people that can affect me. We were talking about Robert Bly earlier, and um, the way I got to know him, um, I had just, I had tried to put on a, a big festival of art in Seattle, um, having no resources of my own, and never thinking that if this doesn't work, I have four kids and I will have nothing. But I was driven by the vision to do it. And it worked in the sense that the people that went, it was very beautiful, but it lost money that I didn't have. And I found myself in debt and, and wow, having a wife and children and, and kind of for the first time, my spirit was broken and I couldn't really go out and make something out of things. And I, but I, I did wind up, a friend of mine was refinishing furniture. I wound up learning how to refinish furniture and I'm actually, depressed at the time and feeling very bad about being a, a father that went into debt when my kids are trying to grow. I didn't see it coming. I didn't, I thought because the project was so beautiful, it had to work and it didn't. Yeah. I mean, it did, but it didn't at that practical level. And, um, and strangely enough, I had encountered Robert Bly. Uh, I went to a poetry reading of his and we talked briefly afterwards and he, called me to invite me to come teach at a conference really based on one conversation we had and so right at a point where i felt as low as i could in many ways i was barely paying the bills if i could and i had four children to raise and all of a sudden i got this call and now i was in a few months in this position of teaching at conferences and things started to gather again, only closer to the gradient. And so, I don't know, I guess I've come to trust uh, that something beyond me is involved. And I don't mean in some silly way, because I've been in too many rough places myself to, to have foolish ideas about it. But if I don't give up on myself and start kind of compounding my mistakes, then something comes in. and. Um, so I don't know if that's faith or what that is, but I do know it goes back to being in solitary confinement. 
and realizing that even when I was alone, I wasn't alone. That the, and that there was some part of me that was connected to something beyond me. And so it's really a shame when, when <laughs> young people aren't held long enough by enough people saying, listen, you're beautiful at the level of your soul, you're meaningful and you're beautiful and you came here to do something. And even if the circumstances aren't right, something will open and you will find a way to become, you know, to become a better version of yourself. And that's what changes the world. So, you know, that's how Michael, it seems. I'm, I'm seeing this image of this, uh, little picture thing that was in my mom's house when I was a kid and it was called footsteps in the sand. And it's this poem that says, you know, like, why is it when there was only one set, of, my hardest times, there was only one set of footprints in the sand. And then the Lord says, that's cause I, that was when I was carrying you. And I was so fucking frustrated when I was in high school that I wrote a poem and I called it shadows and dust. And I said, essentially it ended with at the end of it all, it's all just shadows, like anyone that you think's around, just part of your own shadow, and then you die, and then the dust is blowing around. But what I'm seeing now is that for me, a lot of it was this dark, this underworld initiation. It was like, all right, well, you know, you're, you know, going this direction, and now we need to pull you off, because I think, you know, I've been like a juggernaut. Like, I'm like, I'm going that way, you know, and I start the warrior charging ahead as fast as I can, and, you know, and boom, I'm in solitary confinement. And I, I made millions of dollars multiple times in business. And I had no, I didn't care about making it. It wasn't like I was the Joker from Batman lighting it on fire, but I make the money and I'm just like, we're renting a restaurant out and we're chartering a yacht and here you go, here's some money. And some of my friends that I gave money to before I started making a ton, when I started making, even at the car sales job, I, I'd, I'd like give money or lend money to friends and then they wouldn't pay me back. And then they would come up with a story of why they always hated me and shouldn't pay me back. And those relationships ended, which then again formed some a type of initiation. And I mo kept moving forward. But I, I think what I never quite realized until this conversation is this idea of this underworld initiation that mine wasn't being carried along in the sand. Mine was being thrown to the ground into the dirt. And, you know, and then through that, some of these lessons are even coming about now. Like what the meanings are alive. Like those incidents aren't something in the past. They're like still alive with me. I've always looked at them as they were dead. They were like, oh, that's that time that that happened. But it's still the meaning. The Mr. Mom came emerging from 1993 into 2019, like as an element of that story that never made it. It was just a random movie, you know, that happened to be playing. And I randomly blacked out, you know. And I blacked out also, I think, because I refused to eat around my stepfather because he would force me to eat the food. If I didn't want it, I would be it would be forced on my mouth. And I, I was going to eat whatever. And I was like, fuck you. I'm not eating shit around you. I don't care if I don't eat shit. Well, I'll and, say something uh, about that. I know that experience, too. That's resisting the breaking of your spirit. In other words, as a kid or a young person, when you say, no more, I'm not doing that, you can't make me do that, that's the instinct to protect one's own spirit, realizing that if you 
allowed that to happen, it would be a breaking of your own spirit. It'd be better to go without food. Interestingly enough, going without food is a practice for strengthening your spirit in many spiritual traditions. So they kind of go together and you wind up with a stronger sense of spirit if at the same time lacking direction. But I'm listening to you talk and, and I know you of your involvement with ecstatic dance and everything. Yeah. And so um, it's as if you were stumbling into the ecstatic over and over again through tumbling and, and experiences of coming apart. And so then I start, if I have that kind of story, I start to look at how did I survive all that? Because like you said, you had friends that didn't make it. Same thing where I came from. I had friends who didn't make it. And so how did I survive? I start to pay attention to the things that I did that allowed me to survive. There's, in other words, you have a long, you know, complicated story that includes ups and downs and things going this way and that. And that seems connected to the intrigue with the ecstatic. And then often what's missing is the thread. What's the thread that I can pull through all those experiences? And what's the thread that allows me to let go of the ego static uh, uh, attitudes and go into the ecstatic and then come back with something replenished and renewed. So I, I think there's more coherence possibly there than you're seeing right now. Yeah. What's coming up is an image of me. Uh, it's graphic. Uh, I found out that a friend of mine, she was a really, I had a crush on her actually growing up that uh, she had gotten involved with this thug from uh, this specific part of where I grew up. I'm not want to name where it is because it's really brutal. And this person might have changed since then. But uh, during a sexual act, he had essentially raped her with a shotgun and said, if she cries, he'll pull the trigger. And she told me about this and she's not one for making shit up. And if she tells me, she knows I'm going to fucking do something about it. And this guy had done some other shit too that honestly had it coming to him. And and a group of me and two other people decided we were going to get in the car and do a drive-by. And we were all packing and we went down and and fuck if you could believe it there he is all by himself no nothing to hide behind nothing i mean we're he doesn't even see us until we're inches away and my heart right now is just beating like because i've never told this story like people are going to listen to this you know and and i just like i saw my whole life flash before my eyes like prison and getting beat down in prison and like getting butt raped and just everything just and I just was like, no, nah, fuck it. It's not right. And I just kept driving. They're like, what the fuck, man? You know, like, why'd you bitch out? And it bothered me for uh, just this idea of bitching out, you know, like I should have, I should have, you know, I toyed with this thing, like I should have done it. You know, and I told myself the story, he's going to keep doing it to other women. Like I could have stopped it. Nobody would have known, but I'm glad I didn't do it, you know? And, uh, but yeah, there's been that. And there's been a lot of those situations where... Just if you stay with that, just because you know something about the territory, the bullet shoots both ways. I shoot yeah. a bullet into someone, the unseen bullet goes right into me. I've worked with many people in prison and people who have come out of the gang life and all. And there's a lot of people can't sleep at night because of the visitations they're getting from people they kill. So again, there's something in you that's smarter than that. And, and whatever the story you were telling yourself, the idea I think underneath it is if I kill someone without real clarity or necessity, 
that I'm shooting myself at the same time. There was a thought that I that I, that if I kill him, I'm gonna I have to keep doing it. Like at what like any I'm like a vig, like a vigilante or something. I I mean I didn't think of it like that, but I'm just like by killing him, there's a lot of other people I should kill. You know. Well, you, and now you you you've walked into the realm of death, and there's no easy way back. So. What I become interested in is the part of us that knows better that in these critical moments, even if we've had a rough life, don't go all the way across the street. We used to call it across the street. You know, when you, you can simply change your life and, and end your life in many neighborhoods by simply crossing the street. And so there's something that has us pull back. So there's, to me, that's the something inside saying, no, this is not the right way to die or the right way to live. They're, they're, they're kind of connected. And if I would have lived this way, I would also be dying now. So, you know, I think... To live by the sword is to die by the sword. To live in that yeah. way of retaliation and redemption is to continue that process of retribution over and over again. Yeah. And That's it's really I... important to figure out what, you know, even someone who's living on the street, someone who's going through hell, what keeps us alive? What keep what got us through that? Because that's the part of us we can depend on that I'm calling the gradient or the thread that's just pulls us at the last minute so we didn't go there. You know, and sounds like we both know people who have gone there. And so Yeah, I think I just read a book called Black Elk Speak Black Elk Speaks that he talks about the good red road versus the black road. And it sounds like the other side of the street is the you know, black road versus the good red road. Yeah. And sometimes it's close. It's just crossing the street. So, you know, so then, uh, well, one other thing I found, I can dwell too much in the dramas I've lived because there is a certain heart pounding intrigue with, you know, like here's this story. It really still amazes me that I was in it. Yeah. Um, and yet some of it needs to be reframed, I think, in the sense of, interesting the part of me that didn't want to do that the part of me that somehow sensed that i had a different road and a longer life to live and and so i i know with myself i've had to learn how to hmm, rework the story so i'm still not carrying it as a um out of context drama because some things have seemed that way to me and so then, in a way, they're reverberating inside me in the wrong way. And I've had to learn how to take them and weave them more through the depths of the soul so I understand why was I there? Why did that happen to me? And then, quite interestingly, how did I avoid not getting lost at that moment in that way? And what was it of me that knew that there was a, a, a more meaningful thread to follow? Because in killing someone else, I am killing at least part of myself. I mean, that's what happened to me in the army there, really. It, it, two things that happened at once. When they told me that you will kill on command, to me that sounded like I will also die on command, which is really what they meant, too. Yeah. And, and then I realized, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That that actually won't work for me. And uh, that was, it was a strange moment because that changed my life. The moment I stood up and said, I'm not doing that. And I almost died anyway, 
And the doctors used to wake me up at night. Um, they had doctors that would come in into the cell to check on me because they didn't want me to die in the middle of, of whatever they were doing. And the doctor was, would say, why do you want to die? We can barely get a pulse. And, I, and I'd say, I don't want to die. I'm just clear about how I have to live. That's it. I don't want to die. I just won't live the way I'm being told I have to live. And that was coming from the military. And for some people, that's okay. They can live that way. For me, it wasn't okay. And then when I really pay attention to it, that was like something in me from a very early age saying, I have to figure out a way to live my life or I will be so internally unhappy and at odds with myself that it would be better to be dead. And so I began to learn about that kind of willful, uh, self-aimed part of me. And, and, and I don't know, I hear you talking and it's obviously been a rough road. But I remember thinking about um, where I grew up, rough neighborhood. In a way, I didn't really belong in a lot of the situations I was in, given my natural temperament. I developed a temperament that could deal with it, but it really wasn't natural to me. And so I've had to make conscious effort to find the parts of me that are more uh, mm, more integrated with, with my essence. And a lot of the things I had been introduced to, um, I had to learn how to work with them, live with them, but they weren't essential to me. And somehow being in that solitary confinement for a long time cooked it down to the essence, you know. And... If I had died, I think I would have been all right with that in the sense that I was really close to myself. And, and it actually became harder to come out and live, you know? It's harder to feel the joy because you're afraid it's going to, at least I'm afraid it's going to, the minute I see something beautiful, that's actually more painful for me. Uh, when I experience really beautiful things, like it like it hits a part of me that, uh, like that I didn't, how do I put it? I I went into an earth ship for the first time and I realized that people could build paradise out of garbage and there's like the middle of the desert in Taos, New Mexico. It looks like you're on fucking Mars and there's like bananas growing inside and I'm like, there's people starving. I was in India and there's like people like families living on the street covered in flies. There's people in the hood living in roach infested, flea infested shit that you run out of food after the first four or five days after somebody sells their food stamps to buy whatever the hell they need to buy. And they, there's some food stamps for food, whatever. But, uh, you know, and that's most of my friends that had that shit going on. Actually, I'm not going to go down that path, but I just completely lost what the hell I was saying because I just was so deep where I was like imagining. Well, I was following where you, where you were feeling the joy and then it activates the trauma. That's the problem. It activate the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody looks at you and says, I love you. And it feels extremely painful. Ecstatic dance at first for me was absolutely painful. I thought it was a sham, you know? Um, but yeah, seeing beauty is actually more difficult. It takes almost more courage than to just stay in the darkness. Like it's easier to watch horror films, you know, or, you know, watch people be beheaded on YouTube or whatever it is. is I, I know that sounds crazy that there's people that actually feel calmed by that, but it's actually sometimes calming for people. Absolutely, because it's like playing a song that resonates with how you feel. Mm -hmm. 
and and uh-huh. Uh-huh. the word beauty to me is connected to wholeness. So something that is beautiful creates a moment of wholeness. Like someone's walking through a museum looking at all the pictures and going, ah, I don't get that, don't get that. Ooh, look at this. And they just stop. It's called aesthetic arrest. And they're stopped by something in that one painting, whereas the other ones didn't create that. And then they're absorbed into the painting as if it was a world itself. And it's a moment of wholeness. And so what can happen is the accumulation of trauma can make the moment of wholeness too painful. It can make it too painful until more of that trauma gets mm, integrated. Um, You know, so I follow where you go there and, but what it makes me think of is, so everybody lives their life. It's hard to say what happens when you pass on out of the world because, you know, very few people come back to give us valid information. So, but, and then the body, they say, goes back to earth or, or whatever happens, the body decomposes. It's finished with its time. But the soul continues on on the other side. And one of the old ideas is what remains after we die on the other side is the moments of wholeness. That's what lasts after death, moments when we were whole. And, and, and that means the moments when we knew that someone loved us and, and, and we felt the capacity to love them or love others. The moments when the beauty was so beautiful that it was almost painful. The moments when we awaken to who we are in our essence. Those are the moments that actually make us who we are. And apparently, according to this old idea, that continue after we die. So struggling to find ways to be in the presence of beauty is a meaningful struggle. It's a meaningful path to go on. And even in a world like this that gets more chaotic and more disorderly and more disoriented all the time, ecstatic dance, one of the purposes of that is to be whole, to be held in a wholeness outside my ego structure or whatever you want to call the thing that we use in the daily world to be held there at least momentarily because what happens is a increase of vitality and usual usually an opening of imagination so i come back from the ecstatic enthused with an image or an idea and feeling more vital physically as well those are moments of wholeness those are moments when we were held in something greater than ourselves. We all need that. We need it more and more because of the chaos that's in the world. To be held reminds me of that feeling of oceanic feeling that is talked about, this feeling of just being carried by the whole universe. And in moments of ecstasy, there is that feeling. And I felt that the first time uh, doing MDMA psychotherapy, and it was absolutely horrifying because it was felt so good that I felt like I was dying. And I think that was the same feeling I felt when I blacked out and hit the ground as I felt like I was being carried to the floor. And it was very like I was in a dream image or like in a painting and I just, and I like fell and I hit the ground. It didn't hurt. And I felt like I was dying or I was being rebirthed. Like those two things were merging, the death and the rebirth. 
And this last Sunday at Ecstatic Dance, after doing the Azima, I forget what that means, but we sung it, and then one of our local artists who has deeply been transformed by this practice, this ritual, we do it twice a week, sober, in a temple. Uh, it's in a, a Krishna temple. We borrow Krishna's temple, and we hold it there. With no talking, no cell phones, no video recorders. Uh, people could shout ecstatically. But I, I felt this feeling like as though I was on MDMA, uh, this deep carried feeling. And I felt a little terrified kind because of, one time I, that landed me on the ground when I let, went with the carrying. I'm like, oh, this is so beautiful. Bam, you know? So I'm like, I don't know if I could trust that, that being carried, if that's going to take me in the right place. But I felt that. And I remember coming out, uh, something called me to come out to the lobby area where people were talking. And I looked into a girl's eyes uh, who was a good friend of ours. And the minute I looked into her eyes, she goes, oh, my gosh, I feel really weird. Oh, my gosh. Like, and I'm like, it's the mirror. And something told me it's the mirror neurons. Just, just be with it. And she goes, whoa, whoa, this is really, really trippy. And I go, come back. Do you want to come and dance? Let's come and dance. Let's do that. And she comes in and She's just like, and you see her face, like she's just like coming, like nervous to let herself really feel that. That's my experience. I don't know how she experienced it. And she had to eventually go outside. She had to use the bathroom really bad. And then she was craving, you know, nicotine or something like to like try to ground out. Uh, but I, you're the first person that I heard really put any meaning to the term, the ecstatic or put any real meaning to like the idea of ritual or ceremony and that space that like that ritual time or ceremonial time where like like sometimes it feels like you've been there for eight hours or you were lost in that moment for eternity even not even lost you were you had been found and carried there for eternity then placed back in to try to describe that to somebody that hasn't experienced that is i'd love for you to maybe put some words to it if anything's coming up well i think so it starts way back with the idea that there's a speck or spark of the eternal in each person. We couldn't imagine the ecstatic, the eternal, if we didn't connect to it somehow. And so ecstatic dance, music itself, making love, you can make a list of things that are altered state things. They can involve drugs or not. There's lots of ways to get there. And so it's falling out of time, um, breaking time. Time's relentless march is broken by the rhythm of the dance. And all of a sudden we are carried by a rhythm rather than trapped in time. And if we let ourselves go with it and, and the circumstances are supportive and healthy or whatever makes it work, then what happens is we fall into the timeless. We fall out of time into the timeless and the timeless is the eternal. And we get a sip of eternity. We get a taste of the eternal and it can wash away a whole lot of dull entrapment in time. And the other thing I think that's happening is the ego has to let go. The ego has to let go in order to be there. And that's part of what the pain and the fear is about. It's really the ego being afraid that we'll fall and never come back or that it will go wrong and all that's usually our ego fears. And, and, you know, traditionally throughout the world, all cultures had ways of doing that. And, you know, so um, like 
I had to learn drumming or I found myself learning drumming. And there are rhythms you can learn not that hard that break time, that break time. And, and, and you can affect while you're drumming the dancers and help them find a way out of time. You start out by counting time and feeling it, and the next thing, you're not feeling it that way. You've slipped into the timeless. And so all the interest in rock and roll and popular forms of music are really to get out of the trap of time and the daily world trap. And, and that's always been the case. And it's, you can track it through all cultures. And so it's a medicine of kinds because you get the moment of wholeness or the moment where life isn't fractured or the moment where we are carried, literally. I think your idea about falling and being carried is right. We're carried by something beyond ourselves, greater than ourselves. And it's a, it's a pretty natural thing. Well, it's also a supernatural thing. And that reminds us that we're not just a speck in the universe, that we are a unique pulsing of life. And that gives us our vitality back and a capacity to withstand the struggles of the world better. And so nowadays, when I think we're in the midst of a collective rite of passage, I think the old world is already falling away and we're trying to find a way to a, a new world that won't have some of the problems that the common world has, that in that process of transforming, people need sips or tastes of the eternal, need something ecstatic that breaks the static trap of who I think I am and who everybody thinks they are. And so I think when I see all these transformational festivals that are happening all over North America now, they're happening in other, you know, other places too, but I'm just thinking about North America, there's maybe 50 transformational festivals now. And I think it's all trying to find out how to tap in to the ecstatic before we have to go back and live with the turmoil of the modern world. And, but usually the, the trouble is with the ego's sense of letting go of control and the fear that comes that I'll fall apart or, or I won't survive somehow. And so I think people should take their time with it and not go all the way if it doesn't feel right. But I also think we're all here partially to feel the ecstatic and then allow that to live a little more in ourselves. Uh, the idea is after a while, you just can tap into it right inside. It doesn't have to be created outside, although that's beautiful too, because that gives community and that gives other kinds of experiences. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing. I know for me, just the drum can do it. Just the drum starts to break time and become, I feel like I'm being carried like on a horse, like I'm being carried by a horse. And, and, and I, mean, I can't even tell what my hands are doing. I'm not in charge of it. My hands know enough about the drum. They call, you know, skin play skin. And, and I'm just gliding over the surface of the drum and I'm being carried. And it's free. And it's freeing. And, uh, and anyway, and the next thing, I feel whole again. I feel like more of myself again. And maybe I can take on some of the world again. I, I think a lot of people may feel they don't deserve to feel the ecstatic, that they haven't earned it. Everybody deserves it. Just like children 
you know, children find it their own way. They find it through playing their games and, the, you know, all the things they do, they turn everything into an imaginal realm. So everybody deserves it. I think that's a whole other thing of culture saying that you have to make something appropriate of yourself. And I, and I really think it's a damaging idea because um, we already are something valuable and essential at the depth of ourselves. And we deserve to experience things that are deep and meaningful and transcendent and that we naturally deserve that. But we've been told otherwise. And so naturally we have to fight through those things. The, the voices that say you're not worthy, you're not worthwhile, you shouldn't get this. I think the opposite way around, everybody deserves their taste of, the, of beauty and their taste of love. And when it doesn't happen, that means there's less of it in the world. And now people elect people who don't know that. The people who are in charge don't know that. If they knew it, they wouldn't be doing the things they're doing. And so there's a way in which someone... It's just, not like they're purposefully like, I know of this ecstatic realm and I live in one, oneness and I'm intentionally going to manipulate others and put others in suffering intentionally because I know I'm doing that and I feel good about it because I love being in control and my life is filled with beauty and joy at your expenses. It's that they themselves are a victim and are suffering themselves and other people that are suffering and are victims see them and say, you know, you're like me run this thing. Take me back in time to the day that used to be good, apparently, that my, my ancestors told me was great. Take me back in time to a, to a place before. Yeah, anything but, yeah. So anyway, it's a distorted time. And that's why I say the problem is it's hard to find outside oneself um, the stability that we want, and we have to somehow find it inside. The problem is when you go inside, you meet the demons that are in there, who are saying you're not worthwhile or you know whatever the parents might have said or whatever the neighborhood might have said and so then we have to begin to sort that out you know um i mean i can hear those same voices uh from stuff i heard when i was a kid and then i have to just go wait a minute you know i'm not accepting that i i know where it comes from i know why it penetrated me but i'm not going with that i'm not going with that anymore and so uh, the answers tend to be hidden inside. That's the old Native American idea. Everyone is born with the knowledge they're looking for inside them. But somehow we have learned not to trust ourselves. And for many people, we've been introduced to self-loathing. And we have to get out of the self-victimizing, self-loathing, self, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, self-trashing kind of things that we learn trying to grow up. That's all serious stuff. And just to add something, and I hear you talking about the community doing the dance, because we need to be with other people who can support us and reassure us that we are worthwhile. Sometimes it's hard to believe oneself, you know, but all the cultures I've been able to study, all the stories are about how each child born is a gifted child and came to the world with an aim and a purpose and gifts to give. I think that's worth struggling for. And I think um, the only alternative is the modern idea, which everybody comes in empty, the blank slate, and we become what people write on us. And boy, I just find that so defeating, so self-defeating. 
And or so, that our, or that there's an ideal soul to live as. I know I strive to be like Jesus. You know, I wanted to carry the cross, and my dream was to be crucified and, you know, die for people's sins somehow, like to carry the cross, be whipped, punished, suffer, and then through the suffering somehow reach, uh, like, vindicate others in some weird way. Like somehow if I'm suffering, there's something good about that, you know? Uh, and I feel like I'm in Utah here, and I feel like there's a big Christ complex happening within people with this idea of this type of Christ suffering. You know, you need to suffer because this world is full of suffering, and that's all it really is, is this devil's playground sort of thing. And, you know, we're just going to do whatever it takes to get to the next life and follow the rules, and that's about it. Um, yeah. So that goes back to that song, Azima, which is the uh, West African song that says praise to the earth, gratitude to the earth, gratitude for the gift of life. Because this story about Jesus or whoever it's about, that's the perfect being, always says that this world is a fallen place. And, and that's what allows everybody to destroy the earth. The earth wouldn't be so exploited if people understood the earth as a living being. And so one of the old jokes was people aren't reading the small script at the bottom of the page, which says in the other world, you find exactly what you found here. If you don't find the divine here, it's not going to be in the other world either. And, and so there's a lot of old traditions that are not part of the major religions for that, you know, mostly that are about how this is the place where the divine is found. You know, one of the old ideas of bringing heaven down to earth, music, song, prayers, dance, we're all bringing heaven down to earth, using the body, the mind, and the soul to bring heaven present. That's another aspect of the ecstatic. And not think that if I follow certain rules at the end, I'll get there. I think it's a big joke at the end and says, no, you missed the point. You were supposed to follow the law of your own being. And then you would have found it while you were alive. And then you'd be prepared to leave the world when you go because you've already found what's on the other side of the world. Instead of thinking you live here in a restricted way and then you get freedom later. You know, the whole mystical idea is you find here what most people think you have to can only find there. And all the poets and all the lovers and all the musicians know that. Everybody knows when you're so in tune that you're really in both worlds at once and time has gone. You don't know how much, how long that music was playing because you were carried into another place that's right nearby us. And, and part of a person's life is to find out what arts and what practices get me in touch with that more often. William Blake said, every day has a moment of eternity waiting for you. And for some people, it's more than a moment. And a practice or an art is what we do to make sure that we show up when that moment occurs. And so, you know, so it makes total sense to me that people are who are hurting or who have been victimized or traumatized are going towards dance. It makes total sense because you can dance yourself whole for a moment and that wholeness then lives inside. And so that makes sense that way of doing um, of finding wholeness by making art, making beauty, making music, dancing. It was so hard for me to 
hold the dance in a Krishna temple because it's a religious place. And I was so anti-religious. I would go to places that were supposed to be places of worship and there would be worship time and people are falling on the floor or whatever. And I didn't feel any of it. I went to Christian youth camps and I didn't feel any of it. I went to Russian Orthodox Church as a child and I didn't feel any of it. And I talked to people that were part of, you know, the Mormon religion that's here in Utah and they go there. And I went to one person's, you know, send away for a mission, a person that worked with me. And, you know, people are on their iPhones, kids are crashing their trucks in, nobody's paying attention. The person that's speaking up there is, you know, just kind of like staring off into space and like there's words coming out that they like practice to read, to write down. And that whole ecstatic realm, to me at least, seems gone or, or almost seems faked. It's almost like sometimes in the places where I feel like people are kind of doing a show, like they're a showman instead of a shaman, you know, and, uh, I don't know, what would you say to people that have had this experience with the religions that they grew up in and then maybe even tried to go to ashrams and then found out that there was more of the same thing, follow these rules and here's your guru and do what they say. What would you say to these people that have had these experiences that you know, end up left and feeling alone and maybe taking opiates and you know, that's real common here in Utah? They just feel that there maybe is nothing sacred and there and so I grew up Catholic and and I loved the church. And reason I loved it is they'd have candles burning and they had beautiful images and then the singing would start. And what I loved was the beauty and the ecstatic. And as a kid, I liked going there. That that felt amazing to me actually. But where it went wrong was when the dogma came in and they said, here's the dogma, you have to believe this. And, and that's when it went like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. What happened to all that beauty? What are we trading off for here? So I eventually left all that and then had to go find it again. And so, um, I mean, one thing I was thinking when you were talking about the Krishna temple, Krishna is one of the deities I would trust because Krishna was all about joy and ecstatic and beauty and, and, the, and, the, and the beautiful connection to animals and the connection to the, just the being alive. And, you know, Krishna is actually, if it's not being dogmatized, Krishna, Krishna is like Christ having a really good time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're related that way, actually, even historically. So, yeah, I mean, all that stuff gets broken. In other words, um, everybody has to have their heart broken and everybody has to have their faith broken. And then it's only when we find it again, knowing what it's like to find it in a form of betrayal and, and distrust. And then it's from that place we have to find it again. And so, you know, there has to be the point where I'm not gonna invest in my uh, actual knowledge of what distrust and betrayal are. I'm not gonna trust something foolishly, but I'm gonna find my way back to that connection to the beauty and the unseen and the transcendent. Um, only this time, I'm not gonna betray myself, right? So the, the old idea about betrayal is that every betrayal is a self-betrayal. So if I really examine the places where I've been betrayed, they're the places I have put my hopes and my trusts, and I put them there too much. In other words, we put too much on the guru. We put too much on the leader. And we forgot that some of that stuff that we were projecting was really coming from us. And so then the next time through, I'm there, but I'm not trusting in that 
naive way. I'm trusting something in myself also. It's like the divine connects to the divine in us. And, and that's worth going through some pain and some, dis, and some betrayal to find that in a stronger way. So I know, I know some of my own experience of what that feels like. And then it has to become, you know, I still need that. I was, well, here's something. So someone was seeking when they found that connection that then became betrayed. You can't throw the seeker out with the bath. You've got to get back in touch with the seeker, only seek with open eyes and know a little better how it goes. No one's going to make me whole. That's, you know, someone can introduce me to a way of becoming more whole, but I have to be there myself. It's like healing. In, in the contemporary world, people think that the doctors and the drugs heal people, but healing is a dynamic between the patient and the healer. They're both involved. And when healing occurs, it's actually a third thing that comes present. Just the way in therapy, when some healing happens, a third thing has entered the room. And so the the seeking of the divine or the ecstatic is bringing the third thing in. And if there's a teacher or a guru or a leader, they're providing one element and then the seeker provides the other and the third thing is the divine. That's one way I imagine it so that I'm not giving myself over in a false situation so that I'm betrayed again. I think that's so important. I think people are very afraid to feel anything sacred for the fear of that they'll be betrayed. Yeah. And then we wind up betraying ourselves by not living the full expression of our soul. So at some point we have to say, well, you know, given that I'm going to wind up, uh, I could wind up betrayed either way. At least I'm going to be taking my shot while I'm leaning into what looks like beauty or the eternal or the divine to me. Interesting you say what looks like beauty because the quote was coming to mind from Helen Keller that she says, you know, a life of cer- security and certainty is no more safe than a life of complete uncertainty. And life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And that she was blind and deaf and for a long time mute until somebody penetrated her world and wrote water into her hand. And then a third thing entered and made the connection. And it's that connection that that third, third being, that third intelligence that envelops us seems to make. Yeah. And we have to find our way there despite and because of the ways that we're broken and harmed. I think she said something also like um, uh, the person who is truly blind is not the person who has lost their sight, but the one who has lost their vision. She had that great distinction between sight and vision. And so, you know, the vision goes away and then we have to find our way back to it. Um, In that sense, there is suffering in the world, but that's not the whole definition of the world. And the word sacrifice means to make it sacred. Sacrifice. It means to make it sacred. And so that means that the seeker is partially making the sacred happen. And so there's, there's something to learn there about not that someone's going to give it to me, but I'm, I'm in the dynamic participation in it. 
And that way I might be more perceptive when it's being distorted by someone. Michael, can we end this talk with a song? Unless there's anything you wanted to That's fine. What we should do is Zima because you brought it up a couple of times. <laughs> I think so. So this is from the Dagara tribe in Burkina Faso in West Africa. I got it from Maladoma Somme, an old friend. He's from that tribe. <clears throat> so it's praise to the earth, gratitude to the earth. And I always hear in there praise for the gift of life. Even when life is hard, it's better than the alternative. Praise for being alive and being able to struggle, hopefully in the right direction. Something like that. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> Are we singing it with you? Sure. It's a sing-along. Azima woe, Azima woe, Azima woe, Azima woe, Azima woe, Azima woe. One more time just to make sure we did it. Gratitude, praise to the earth. Thanks for the gifts of life, for you, for me, for the, wh whoever's listening. Let's live it as fully as we can, wounds and all, betrayals and all. Yeah? Yeah. I see the divine child so alive in you right now, Michael. <laughs> it's a yeah. beautiful thing to see. It's made it all of these years, and here it is. Yeah, they say, there he is. yeah, if you can get connected to the thread, you get younger as you get older. I'll vote for that. All right. Good to be with you, Zach. Thank you, Michael, so much. I love you. Good luck on the road. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone.
And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.